month of April, we're having some baptisms. I just thought, I'd, as I start some things off this morning, just want to touch base on a few of those things. Um, the 25th, we'd just love you to put it in the, in the diary um, that uh, baptisms are taking place in, at Pound Bend. And what is that? that? Baptism is when someone's plunged under the water and comes back up again saying they want to follow Jesus. And as we talk to people over the years, we realize that there's some things that actually prevent people from saying, I want to be baptized. And it goes something along the lines of this. Once I get closer to Jesus then, the only problem with this rationale is that it'll fluctuate from week to week, day to day, according to how you feel. The second reason people give us is that once I become a better Christian, which is also fluctuates because it's always at the whim of what is a better Christian anyway. In fact, the whole entire Christian life has got to do with recognizing that Jesus has done something for you that you cannot do for yourself. He forgives your wrong, your past, your sins. He breaks its power. He raises to new life. And so here's one of the things that you might do is say, well, look, if I'm a better person, I can kind of earn my way to God. That's just not how it works. Thirdly, is that sometimes people will say, I don't feel ready yet, which is just the case of we just don't feel. And sometimes we feel ready and other times we don't. And lastly, sometimes people just say, I might get cold and I might get wet which is kind of coward intuitive because that's what it's involved doing. You might get cold and you definitely will get wet. So I love it. The idea of baptism really cutting to the, the heart of what is it for a person to follow Jesus is when they actually say, Jesus, I believe in who you are. In fact, this is most recognized in, in one of the books of the Bible, Acts chapter 8. There's a by the, man by the name of Philip who's interacting with an Ethiopian and he's asking about who Jesus is and he comes to see that he's this this person who is the son of God and he tells him, Philip tells him the story about how he's died and he's come back to new life and it radically changes his life just there and then he puts his confidence in him. And so his words go something like this. I'm having to click this twice to get it all up here. Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And so really what it was in that moment is not how long in between, but a simple conviction that I believe in who you are and therefore I go ahead and I proclaim that to others. So if you're here this morning and if someone asked you, are you a Jesus follower? And you said, yes, but I'm not feeling like, or once I get myself perfect, whenever that will be, um, or, or, or when I think it's just the perfect right timing, I just encourage you to say, explore baptism on the 25th. And would you come along also and watch those people who are doing that on the 25th of April, something to celebrate in together. You know, so we have been talking about this idea of coming alongside other people. And in fact, um, one of the things we're recognizing post-COVID is that we're all still a little bit tired. Anyone here in the room a little bit tired? It can be a little bit tiring, can't it? It's just uh, I see some mums over there with hands really high, new mums. Um, and uh, it's true. In fact, we recognize that one of the challenges we have in getting back together as a community is that some of you have, have seen the simplified life and you like it. <laughs> some of you of us have fallen out of habits that are hard to re-engage again. Some of us are just feeling a little bit tentative about being in larger groups. And so we just recognize that as part of our getting back together again, and some of you are online for that very reason, is going to take some time. So that's why we've identified one of these themes called coming alongside others because it's a way in which we can gather back together and we can actually start to be the kind of people that we think Jesus would shape us to be. So whether you're here this morning and you're checking him out 
or whether you've been following him for many years, one of the powerful things we recognize is that Jesus came alongside others and he bids you do the same. And so we've been exploring over the past number of weeks what an alongsider might look like. An alongsider is someone who opens the doors of their life, who listens graciously to others, who encourages others intentionally, who sometimes enters into our own suffering. And also, last week, Ali spoke about confronting inconsistency. In fact, all of these constitute, if you like, what might be an exemplar of an alongsider. And so we're looking at the person of Jesus and unpacking qualities we see in his life. And this week, I have the terrific topic, the topic that I just can't wait to talk about, is the pain of experiencing rejection. The truth is in our lives that sometimes we might come alongside someone else, that we might open up the doors of our life, and sometime down the track, they might slam that door in your face. They might use you, they might fail you, and they might even betray you. I once had heard a person say, about a particular man who was causing a lot of damage in his relationships, say these words of him. I wish a friend of his would just come up and stab him in the front. (laughs) I like that. There's a proverb that goes something like this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. They said what that person needs is a friend to come and stab him in the front, to be honest with them, not so they can tear them down, but so they can ultimately lift them up. But what happens when someone in your own life that you've opened the doors of your life to welcome them in, fail you, use you, or maybe even betray you, such that you feel as though they have stabbed you in the back? I want to talk about this most unenviable topic this morning. It's a truth. And it's a reality. And alongside us sometimes experiences the pain of being hurt by another person that they'd welcomed into their lives. And so given that it's two weeks away from Easter when millions of people around the world celebrate or mourn the death of Jesus and celebrate his coming to new life again, I thought that we might talk about this particular topic through the eyes of one of the shady characters in the Bible that forms the subplot of Easter, and that is the man by the name of Judas. In fact, Judas has been passed down through the annals of history as being the greatest betrayer. If there's a betrayal that historically has impacted and shaped art, music, that has even entered into our own language, it's the word or the name Judas. You might have heard someone say of another person, they are a Judas, or that was a Judas act. Well, it comes from one of the characters that Jesus had welcomed into his own life and made himself vulnerable to, had opened up the doors, and I thought it might be fitting to explore this topic through this character by the name of Judas. So there's three observations I have and one challenge I'd like to give as I proceed. So pulling the pieces of the story together about Judas and they are pieces, this is kind of what we do know. Firstly, we discover that Jesus appointed Judas to be part of his 12. Mark, if you want to follow with us, particularly in chapter 14, but in Mark chapter 3, one of Jesus' um, 
times Mark talks about is that these are the 12 that Jesus appointed. Story goes that Jesus had been rejected. He spent a night on a mountain praying and seeking his father's direction for who he might start off a new 12, a new movement, a a, a new way forward with a new group of people, 12. And after having spent a night in prayer, he comes down from the mountain and he points the chosen 12. Simon, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Some of you are thinking, I've never heard these names before. Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, footnote, the one who betrayed him. Wouldn't you love to be recorded in the annals of history with that little footnote? The one who betrayed him. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Did Jesus get it wrong? When did Jesus become aware that someone that he'd opened the doors of his life to was eventually one day going to betray him? Well, the details are a little bit scant. Because what we do discover is that in the latter part of Jesus' ministry, as he starts to actually move towards Jerusalem, Jesus at least becomes aware and and very clear about the nature of his destiny and his calling and that it will involve him dying. This is what he says, Mark 8. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and that on the third day he would rise again. He continues to repeat this. John in the sixth chapter records this though about around this time. Jesus has performed a great miracle in the wilderness And he's actually produced bread and multiplied it to feed thousands of people. And Jesus presses the crowd and says, it's not just bread I want you to give. If you want to follow me, I want you to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And when people hear that, they kind of go, ooh. And Jesus is saying it to push them further and say, don't chase me just for the miracles I can do. Chase me because of the person I am. And he says these words. He said, the words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and of life. And yet some of you who do not believe. Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So where we start with from the beginning, we don't know early on, latter two. At least he knew at that time someone would betray him. Which then strikes me in a second way is that Judas, having seen Jesus do all the stuff that Jesus did, still goes ahead. I mean, Judas was there in the boat when Jesus whispered to the wind and it stopped. Judas was there when he raised Lazarus to new life. The tomb was opened and a dead man came back. Judas was there when he saw Jesus care for the poor. Judas was there when... He saw Jesus speak the words that he did, words of life. And yet somehow they failed to penetrate the deepest recesses of his mind and his heart. So what do you do when someone fails you? Well, the first observation I have is when someone's opened up the doors of their life so openly and so intimately like Jesus has to Judas. There are times in your life when someone fails you or uses you or slams the door in your face that you inevitably start to ask the question, why? I think we do that as humans because of the confusion that surrounds a betrayal. It's such that we try and make sense of it so much that we think in making sense of it, it will actually help us deal with the pain and the confusion itself. 
And so there's a sense in each one of us is that when we're wrestling with the question, why, that we find ourselves trying to reconstruct a narrative. Sometimes we internalize it and say, maybe it's something to do with me. Sometimes we externalize it and we say, well, maybe it's something to do with the circumstances in their life. Maybe we'll actually just never know. I remember an older man who'd had a public falling out with another man. And it was so spectacular that many years later, I remember having a quiet conversation with this man. The one who was probably failed the most. And I said to this man, could you help me understand why that happened? And most generously, that older man said back to me, you know what, Troy? I just think that that other person wasn't in their right mind. Which is a kind of nice way of saying, I don't fully understand. It hurt me all the same. But I choose to believe that they weren't in their right mind when they did and performed those things. You see, in the, sake, in the case of Judas, though, what we discover is that Jesus had brought him in. And in that moment of which there was a time in his life that the doors had been opened up, what we discover is that Mark records these words. Now, the Passover festival of unleavened bread was close. There was only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. And the only insight that we have to Judas's motive, if you like, if we want to try and piece that together, is that straight after this, Mark records an incident that took place in a town close by, by the name of Bethany. And this is what it says. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar. Perhaps this is the same Mary as the Mary and Martha Mary. A very fine alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. It says that she broke the jar and he poured the, she, she poured the perfume on his head and anointed him. Well, the story goes on in that moment that the disciples see what's happened and the expensive nature of the perfume. And they kick up a fuss and they arc up and they say these words. Why this waste of perfume? Jesus, if we've learned anything about you, these are my words. Over the last number of years, you have taught us to go and give money to the poor. So it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And so they rebuked her harshly. At this moment, Jesus turns to them and says, back off. <laughs> this woman's doing something that is profound. She's preparing for my burial and you'll always have the poor with you. Not conceding, but just saying. In fact, John then says this about the little back take, the backstory. He says these words. Judas was the loudest, he said. And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the common purse and he used to steal what was put into it. The little backstory we have about Judas is that he was the treasurer of the group, one of the most trusted. And some of them had observed the way that he dealt with money. And so we wonder as we put the pieces of this puzzle together, was it the fact that maybe, maybe, that Judas was one of the 12 who had the money bag to himself and that just like James and John of last week, they believed that Jesus was coming into his kingdom when he would actually become the leader. And as a result of that, this was payback time. 
After all, Judas had given three and a half years of his life and he had that little plot of land up in Galilee all secured and he wondered and he imagined that maybe now is the time that we could have some payback for all of the effort. And besides, Judas was the one who used to look after the money bag and take some for himself. Maybe there's something that had been forming and scheming and, if you like, brewing in Judas over time. You see, sin is a power before it's an act. It's a little moment inside of you that grows. It starts off as a thought and a desire and it takes root and takes hold. It's a power before it's an act. And so Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. We don't quite understand the full complexity of Judas's moment of, of weakness or determination. But don't stare too long into that well because you might see a picture of yourself staring back. The second thing I observe when someone fails us, uses us, lets us down, is that not only do we ask the question why, but there's a huge sense of broken trust. That's why parents will often say to their children, kids, I'd rather you tell me the truth, even if it hurts me and pains me, rather than you lie to me. Because if you lie to me, there is nothing that I can stand on. Broken trust is like standing on quicksand. You can never build anything on it. The deeper the wound, the greater the breach, the more the heartache. That's why they would tell you, tell me the truth, because then we have something to build upon. Isn't that right? So usually when a pain, usually when there's a breach, fundamentally it's a break of trust. Which is all the more tragic because John in chapter 13 records records this about Jesus. He said on that night just when Judas was going to do those things, he gathered them in an intimate setting to have a meal. And in that space, he says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Wow. How profound is that? That in the moment in which he would be stretched and challenged the most, Jesus has this sense of peace, deep-seated sense of comfort that he had come from God and that he was going back to his Father. In that setting, the momentous power of the moment begins to creep into Jesus' mind. And he says this. John writes, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Such was their profound sense that we might fail one another and we might jostle for power positions, but no one, no one, no one would ever go behind our master's back such that they believed. And so Peter nestles alongside John, who's probably the youngest in the group and is leaning closest to Jesus. And Peter says to him, hey, would you ask him, who's he talking about? And so Peter answers this, which one? And leaning her back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, 
John asks probably, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it into the dish. Maybe just a little gentle whisper beside him. And so he leans in, dips into the dish, and he hands it to Judas. And it says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, just go and do it quickly. You see, here in this moment, we have this uncanny confrontation of evil. What Judas has been brewing in his heart and mind, what he's gone and planned with the chief priests and secured some money for now, in this moment when he might be weak, he actually takes the bread and he actually determines to do it. And at that moment, John writes, is when he colludes with evil itself. Whether it was in him, over him, under him, around him, I don't really care. What it does mean is that there was a power, if you like, escalation there where he actually joins with evil. And the very thing that that word Satan means, the accuser, is the very thing that's going to happen to Jesus in just a few hours' time. You see, when someone slams a door in your face and fails you and lets you down, there's not only a sense of asking why, not only is there a sense of betrayal, but there's a deep-seated sense of pain and heartache that comes from it. And so Jesus has said these words, if you like, to Judas, out publicly aloud. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This is not a curse. This is just a reality. What he sees in Judas is that he's going to be overwhelmed by the sense of betrayal that has taken place and the suffering would make him feel like he wished he'd never been born. And so the last time they see Judas because he heads out into the night having taken the bread will be just in a few hours later where he comes with a cohort of soldiers and he presents himself to Jesus, a planned little act in which the one he greets and kisses is the one who will be betrayed. And so the next words that they exchange are these. Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. You see, when someone lets you down and hurts you, there's a great heartache. That's a truth. From this moment on, all the disciples are scattered. They run out into the dead of night. I kind of see that as a figure, as a picture of actually what really happens in life. You see, because usually when someone's betrayed or failed or someone's had the door slammed in the face, it doesn't just impact them. The ripple effect is profound. And so not only do we try and ask the question why, not only do we have a sense of breach of trust, but there's also a great sense of heartache that comes over us. And so when I experience this in my own life, and I don't know how you respond, there's just three observations. But the challenge I find in my own life is this, because this is what I want to do. When someone fails me, that I've opened the door of my life to, when someone uses me, when I've given them as best I can, When someone betrays me, I want to get them. The instinct in our humanity, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness wants to say, I want to repay 
hurt for hurt, pain for pain. Someone once said it's like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But imagine if the world lived that way. Imagine if everyone lived by the mantra of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sooner or later, they said, the whole world would be blind and toothless. It doesn't work. Feels good for the moment. No, once the emotion goes and I get past the get em part, the next part that I experience in my own life, and I wonder if you've been challenged yourself with, so I want to give them up. You see, give them up looks like this. You hurt me, I cut you off. I slam the door back at you and I lock it. The only problem with that kind of action is that not only you lock it, you lock it on the inside and you are actually trapped on the inside. I once heard a man say this and I saw it in front of me. He held his phone in front of me and he saw and read a text message and he said, hmm, well, that just about does it for that person. And he hit delete. I said, what did you just do? He said, I just deleted that person. I said, what do you mean? He said, I deleted them from my contact list. I said, what does that mean? He says, they're done. Never again. Gone. I said, what do you mean? He goes, that's it. They're out of my life. So the only problem with that kind of action is that it gets kind of like infectious. You do it once and then someone else hurts you and you have to do it again and again and again and again and again. And before you know it, you've locked the doors of your life so nothing else can get in. And it hurts on the inside too. There's a sense of bitterness that rises up or pain that you find you start to actually sit in it yourself and it impacts you. Have you noticed that? That's just the way life works. Sometimes there's part of me that wants to get them. Sometimes there's part of me that wants to just give them up. But I realize it can lead me to becoming bitter and twisted myself. And so there's a third way. This is the challenging way. This is the way that I wouldn't suggest to you, but I think it's the only way. And you can only do it some ways in the power of Jesus. Is this. We've got to be in the practice of giving them over. What is that? You see, when you give someone over, you realize the pain they've done to you, the heartache, the broken trust. Sometimes you put in barriers and breaches there because that's the right, wise thing to do. But there's part of you that needs to become, have a conversation with yourself and with God that goes something like this. God, I can't change that person. What that person did to me hurt and it hurt deeply. I don't have any trust in them whatsoever, but I can't fix them and I can't reverse the circumstances. So God, I want to give them over to you for you to work in their lives because I cannot fix it or change it. In fact, I don't even want to right now. I am just hurting. Does that make sense? You see, the difference between giving someone up and giving them over is like this. When you give them up, you lock the door and there's no way forward. When you give them over, you allow the door to be opened a little bit. And if the door's opened a little bit, then there's room. There's room for healing. And maybe there's room for reconciliation down the path. Now, a lot of you have just heard what I said just then and you've applied it directly to your circumstances and now you're angry with me. Don't do that. Because I don't know your circumstances. But what I do know is this, is that when we're in the practice of giving things over, 
It allows for God's grace to move. Why should I do that, Troy? Because Jesus did. It said, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become part of God's partnership. He said, whilst human beings were still sinners, whilst they were still saying, God, get out of my life. I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to do life my way. Get out. It says, Jesus still died. He took the higher way. And the higher way might be costly, but the higher way seems to be the only way that would bring healing to you and healing to a world. In fact, it's part of the way of God's kingdom. The tragedy of Judah's story is that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with such remorse, he returned the 30 pieces of silver and he said, I've sinned for I've betrayed innocent blood. And then he went out and took his life. Tragically. He was so overwhelmed, he wished he'd never been born. It's so different. Because there were two betrayals on that night. Peter did the same thing. Denied Jesus to his face three times. The difference between remorse and Peter's, if you like, repentance is the direction you go. After hearing all the words that Jesus had spoken and the grace and the love and the forgiveness that he offered, countless time had gone, time had gone, time, somehow in Judas' mind, maybe speculation, he didn't feel as though that forgiveness was for him. Well, I want to say to you today, if you're a Judas, I want you to know that you're a Peter. Because Peter hung around. And when Jesus rose to new life, he turned and he said to the disciples, go and tell, or to the the, the ladies, go and tell the twelve and Peter. Go and tell the disciples, minus one, and Peter. Because he wanted Peter to know. His love and kindness and goodness had extended to him. So where are we? Coming up, Peter. Coming up, Steph. I wonder if we might just pause for a moment. Because the realization is that sometimes in our lives, we open up the doors and they're slammed in our face. Now, who would like to do some alongsiding this year? Isn't it fun? But Jesus did. Changed people's lives. Not everyone. And he bids Jesus' followers do the same. So I wonder if you're here this morning and you've closed the door. You're hearing the voice of God say to you, I'd like to do some healing in your life, but you have to give me some permission for you to open the door. You might even pray and say, Jesus, I don't want to open the door, but I'm willing for you to help me open the door. Or maybe you're here this morning and there's a sense in which you're the one who's been the betrayer. And you sense God speaking to you. Would you come to me? Because my love for you, no matter 
how bad you think you've done extends to you. And I can tell you that because it's the story of Peter. So we're going to sing a song right now and I invite you in that posture in a moment to stand with me. And this song talks about the overwhelming, reckless, powerful love of Jesus. And I believe that it extends to you and to me, no matter whether or not you're the Judas or whether or not you're the person who has been hurt by the same man. And as we sing, and I invite you to sing, I wonder if you might just posture yourself, that you might stand and that you might join us in song, but for you it might be to open up your life. And just pause and say, Jesus, would you heal me? Jesus, would you forgive me? I repent. I turn to you. I receive your love and your grace. So would you stand with me? Would you respond to God?